0: Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you guys are tuning into this one, this is actually part two of our sleep medicine series, and on um, our first part, we actually talked to uh, Dr. Chris Winters um, about sleep, kind of from the more um, medicine aspect, because he's a neurologist and also a sleep medicine specialist, so we talked a little about medication, that kind of stuff, but we have part two today, and sleep is such a like a large topic, we had to have two episodes on it, that's why it's back-to-back, so if you have not already, go listen to that first one and then come back before you listen to this one. Um, And the best way to do that is to go to our website. Everything else is there, our mailing list, our socials, everything. Um, I'm excited to get into this one to continue to talk much sleep, so let's do that. Overcoming saber toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. the preventive medicine podcast we believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live and now here's your host Raghav Sharma Like I was saying, we're talking about sleep again today. And this is another one of those guests, which I don't know how we get on this podcast because she's so qualified. Um, (laughs) So today's guest is uh, Dr. Jade Wu, who is a PhD um, in clinical psychology and also completed a residency in clinical psychology at uh, Duke and is now also a board certified sleep psychologist. So that's something I actually know nothing about. So I'm interested to hear about that. But aside from that, she's also presenter and reviewer for so many top tier journals, has been on all kinds of TV shows, podcasts guest, you name it, and her current research uh, focuses on the treatment of sleep disorders in chronic illness. So welcome to the show, Dr. Wu.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Definitely. Well, I am interested to hear about uh, sleep psychology and clinical psychology because I have no idea what that is. So kind of what (laughs) drove you to getting into that field and how did you get interested in it?
1: Well, it's uh, kind of a funny story because my father is actually a sleep, was a sleep researcher in the Chinese uh, equivalent of NASA. So the Chinese space agency, and Hmm. he was working with astronauts on researching their sleep. And I was like a little four-year-old, you know, visiting his lab sometimes. So I guess in a way, sleep research has always sort of been in the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I got interested in psychology just because I was always fascinated by how the brain um, and how human behavior, you know, work all work together. Um, And so, yeah, I got my PhD in clinical psychology. I started out actually in anxiety and depression research mostly. Um, And then I also got into Parkinson's research. But across all of these topics, everywhere I looked sleep was like a common factor, right? Sleep was Mm -hmm. messed up in every condition, every uh, physical and psychological condition. So I figured, you know, if we can know more about sleep, if we can help people sleep better, that's just gonna raise the water for all boats. So then that's how I got into this specialty.
0: Definitely. So can you kind of tell me when you think of like a physician or something or sleep medicine doctor, you think, okay, they're prescribing medications. What do you do as a sleep psychologist that's different from, let's say like a psychiatrist or a sleep medicine doctor, quote unquote?
1: Sure. Yeah. So my area is behavioral sleep medicine. The behavioral is kind of the clue, um, which is that, you know, I work with people on non-medication approaches to change the way they act, um, and change the way they think about sleep. Um, and, Depending on the sleep disorder, the behavioral approach could actually be the first line treatment. So for insomnia, mm-hmm. for example, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, American College of Physicians all recommend cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia as the first line treatment. So those so insomnia is kind of like my bread and butter, most of what I do. Mm-hmm. But there are also be- behavioral approaches to decreasing nightmares, Um um, realigning circadian rhythms, you know, um, as you probably know, a lot of people with sleep apnea have trouble using their CPAP or PAP machines. So Mm -hmm. I help people to motivate them to decrease their anxiety about it. So I do all of the non-medication things that make sleep better or help people to adhere to other treatments for sleep.
0: Definitely. Well, I like how you say that behavior is kind of the first line, because I think it should be in a lot of like traditional medicine stuff anyway. And oftentimes you just kind of skip that part. So I love that. Um, From your perspective, uh, being the Preventive Medicine Podcast, what is kind of the intersection? What does preventive medicine mean to you in that context? Oh,
1: I, I just I absolutely love the philosophy of your work and your podcast here, because I think, you know, prevention, uh, one ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So when it Mm. comes to sleep, I think that's particularly pertinent because sleep is such a basic biological need and it affects every system in your body. It's, is affected by so many things that we do, um, and the things we ingest, and the the way we think about sleep, the way we relate to our relationships and work and everything. Um, that is just so integrally uh, part of every aspect of health and life. So if we can, uh, you know, identify problems with sleep early on, or even before we have any problems with sleep and help people to have this part of their life be very healthy, then I think we're preventing a lot of problems. I mean, if you think about it, we spend about a third of our lives, you know, sleeping or trying to sleep. So if you live to the ripe old age of 99, you'll have spent 33 years sleeping or trying to sleep right so you know what kind of relationship do you want to have with sleep when you're spending so much time with it so that's the kind of um, lens that i'm
0: working from and i hope it's not 33 years trying to sleep and hopefully it's (laughs) actually ideally but uh i I also like how you mentioned that it's something that everyone does do. Like you have to sleep in a day. Everyone's going to be sleeping. And it's one of those exposures. I think we also discussed in the context of nutrition that everyone eats, everyone sleeps. And it's something that we don't really put too much um, emphasis on at times, even though it's something that's so important and impacts every single aspect of our lives, like you were mentioning, from our relationships to people and to food sometimes Mm -hmm. and to like pretty much everything you can name. Yeah. Um, For sure. So before we go on, um, I know this wasn't in the outline that I sent you, and this is kind of could be a long question, but kind of to set the stage for this. Uh, Can you briefly describe the stages of sleep just so we have like a little primer on what we're going to be getting into?
1: Sure. So first of all, I would say that I prefer to think of it as different types of sleep, not stages, only not to split hairs too much, but Only because when we say sleep stages, it sounds like some are better than others. And Mm -hmm. the further stage you go, the better. And we we should be like leveling up like in a video game, trying to get to later Mm -hmm. stages. But that's not really how it works. I like to think of different types of sleep, almost like different types of nutrition. Just like you want a balanced meal um, for your dinner, you want a balanced night of sleep, right? So there are different types of sleep. We have... um, what's called stage one sleep, which is really kind of restful wakefulness. It's just a few minutes throughout the night, you know, mostly serving as a transition between fully being awake and other stages of sleep. We have stage two, uh, which is, Also called light sleep. And that's where we're more, we're pretty easily woken from it. Um, So that's why it's considered light. But that doesn't mean it's not important. Lots of things are happening in it. We have brain activity called spindles and K complexes. And those are helping us to consolidate memories and rest and learn things. Um, And then we have. Uh, something with uh, stage three, which is also called deep sleep sometimes, also sometimes called slow wave sleep or delta sleep. And this is the type of sleep where we do more of our bodily repair Um more of the restorative and janitorial work in the brain. So we're clearing out toxins, we're um, healing the body, the immune system is getting, you know, getting a boost. Um, So very important stage of sleep also. Oh, and by the way, uh, stage two sleep is about to uh, take, supposed to take about 50% of the night. So about half the night. Um, Mm. Many people are worried when they see that they only got like 15% deep sleep last night on their sleep tracker, but that's actually really normal. About 15% is about what you're supposed to get for deep sleep. And last but not least, we have rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep for short. And this is a totally different type of sleep. That's really fascinating. The brain waves look very similar to when you're awake. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is where a lot of the emotion regulation, dreaming um, and other things are happening. Our bodies are sort of paralyzed. Our major muscles experience atonia, so we can't act out our dreams. So that's a adaptive good thing. Um, but our brains are very active, and we have a lot of cognitive and emotional activity going on. So dreams and nightmares usually happen in REM.
0: Yeah. I like how you mentioned the kind of people get worried when they see 15% in deep sleep. Um, okay. Cause people think like you were saying that there are different like stages of a game where the deeper you are, the better you are and the better your sleep quality. Right, right. So that's why I kind of wanted to bring that up at the beginning of this podcast so that we know that this is normal. Yeah. Like you're not going to be your entire <laughs> night in deep sleep. So I just wanted to set that stage.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, so getting straight into it, we're going to discuss chronic illness with the uh, within the context of sleep. So I guess the first thing is how does poor sleep quality affect the risk of various chronic diseases? I know that's a broad question, but however we sure. want to take that.
1: Yeah. So having poor sleep kind of raises the risk for everything else. Uh, when we have poor sleep, we may have higher inflammation. We may have lower immune response. Uh, we likely experience exacerbation, exacerbation of other symptoms like pain. Um, and you know, it's it's really not so good for our mood either when we don't sleep well. So whatever chronic illness you're dealing with, you know, it's probably already anxiety provoking and maybe causing some depression or frustration. That's going to be magnified even more with not enough sleep. So mm-hmm. certainly sleep has a role to play in all of, all of these things.
0: Yeah. So... As you were saying, it definitely impacts everything. I think I read, um, I mean, I'm not super well read in sleep, so I don't have, <laughs> unfortunately I can't read everything, but I think there was like something I was reading where like your T cell activity for your immune system goes down by like 40% through like chronic sleep deprivation, which is a pretty significant amount. So it can definitely affect just various parts of the body. Sure. But, um, one of the other questions I have here is that, so when people think of like risk mitigation and in this podcast, we always joke that we have a terrible name, we should be like the, uh, risk reduction podcast. So when it comes to risk reduction, is this kind of like a, lar- a smaller risk factor where if you don't sleep enough that it's like, okay, I can mitigate this risk somewhere else. Or is this something that's like unavoidable, large risk that you have to sleep? Otherwise you're putting yourself at very large risk.
1: I mean, that's such a great question and I kind of want to answer it in two ways because um, as we'll probably talk about later, the way you talk about sleep really depends on who you're talking to. And there's not really one universal message mm-hmm. to all of your listeners. So what I would say is for the people who are like only giving themselves four or five hours of sleep and they're like, it's okay, I'll make up for it with coffee or something <laughs> else. I say to them, no, 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 no. <laughs> sleep is irreplaceable. Coffee is false fuel. It is not actually giving you uh, the, the rest and the other vital activities that are happening during sleep. So you cannot train yourself to need less sleep. You cannot replace sleep with other things. Um, on the other hand, Now let me kind of turn around and talk to people with insomnia who have trouble falling asleep, who have trouble staying asleep and are really worried about their sleep. What I say to them is um, just because you are having trouble falling or staying asleep does not mean you're chronically sleep deprived. So when you hear messages like chronic sleep deprivation is going to give you dementia and is going to give you a heart attack and it's going to be awful. Um, Of course, you're going to be feeling very anxious hearing Mm -hmm. those messages, but those messages likely do not apply to you because here's the thing, insomnia and sleep deprivation are two different things. And here's a way to think about it. If you are sleep deprived... You are going to be very sleepy, like even prisoners of war who are in extremely anxiety provoking situations when they're sleep deprived. Even they get so sleepy that they can't help but fall asleep standing up shackled to the wall. Right. So if you're sleep deprived, you're going to be sleepy. And if you're sleepy, you're not going to have insomnia you're going to be able to fall asleep and stay asleep, right? So these two things are different. There is some overlap. For some people, they do have both. And usually those people also have other sleep disorders like sleep apnea or a pretty significant case of PTSD, which Mm -hmm. can kind of mess with how all of that works. Uh, But for most people with insomnia, they are not sleep deprived. So I hope that that kind of answers your question. Um, It's hard to answer a lot of these because the message really depends on who you're talking to.
0: I know. And it's always difficult when we come on discuss large topics like these because we don't have like three hours we don't right. have time like sit in a lecture you obviously went to school for this and you got like an entire education on so this. we can't do that within right, an hour right. but I do appreciate how you kind of broke it into those two kind of subsections because yeah. there are definitely those splits where we have the people who sleep four to five hours might have been me at some point not gonna admit to that but um, I think everyone has had that period at some point sure um, college
1: but also I medical school yeah exactly
0: exactly residency
1: residency <laughs> certainly i i I' yeah. do not envy you that, I'm sorry,
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, residence is just a different circumstance So where like you don't have an option, you just have to live on whatever you can, yeah, um, but I wouldn't even think to kind of split those two populations up between like the people with insomnia and whatnot, and the people who choose to do it, so mm-hmm. I like that you did it that way, yeah. um when it comes to kind of those already battling chronic diseases does that change how they sleep? For example, let's talk about like some medical things. So for example, if someone has like um, hypertension, diabetes, all those kinds of things, does that change sleep or is it mostly just like mood disorders?
1: Uh, Yes. And yes, all of the above. <laughs> so, yeah, so when you have a chronic disease, it tends to disrupt sleep. So, the things you mentioned um, hypertension, diabetes, uh, another uh, common thing that I see comorbid with sleep problems is chronic pain, um, cancer. Um, you know, all of these chronic diseases can make it more difficult to sleep through a lot of different channels. Like if you have pain, obviously you're uncomfortable. It's harder to sleep. If you have hypertension, your body is less able to sort of rest and, um, do the things that it needs to do to fully get into sleep at night. Um, so yeah, there are lots of channels through which, chronic disease can affect sleep. And at the same time, having poor sleep can also exacerbate chronic disease. So it's kind of a two way street. Um, and that goes for both physical and mental illnesses. So depression certainly makes it more difficult to sleep. Um, and having insomnia makes one more likely to have more, more severe depression, uh, more likely to relapse into depression. Um, Poor sleep can also even trigger things like manic episodes or psychotic episodes or seizures for that matter. Uh, but th- those are more extreme cases. So, so you know, again, people with insomnia, don't worry, you're not walking around about to go like have a seizure just because you have insomnia. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all to say that it's a two-way street. Um, all of these are intertwined. <laughs>
0: Sure. And kind of for my own curiosity here, we were kind of talking about chronic illnesses in this, um, but I want to switch to like acute illnesses Mm -hmm. because in the hospital, as a physician, you're going around, you're seeing people in acute times. Obviously, someone has like an exacerbation, COPD, a heart attack, all of those kinds of things. And unfortunately, in the hospital, sleep is not something that happens very well. Um, whether that be just because it's extremely uncomfortable to be in a hospital or whether it's you're in a setting where someone's coming in and like taking your blood every like four hours. Right. Um, I don't know how much you, um, kind of have looked into that. I've studied that obviously more than me, but kind (laughs) of, um, what are the effects of kind of acute sleep deprivation in that setting?
1: Sure. I'm so glad you bring that up because, One of the lowest-hanging fruits, and maybe this is not low-hanging fruit because I don't know about logistically running a hospital. Mm -hmm. But I think if we could just improve sleep for all patients just by a little bit, we're going to see better outcomes for all of these patients that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So post-surgery, post-heart attack, you know, in any sort of acute recovery from anything, um, even even with um, things like infectious disease, you know, if people could sleep better while they're in the hospital, they would probably recover faster because again, their immune response is better when they sleep well. Inflammation is lower when you sleep well. you know, you're able to physically heal the body better and release the growth hormones and the things that you need to release when you're sleeping well. Uh, But I also want to bring up that it's not just sleep deprivation in the hospital that matters. It's circadian disruption. Mm. So circadian system is, you know, our 24 hour system of complex network of billions of clocks in our bodies you know that run the timing of any everything from metabolism to gene expression to uh, you know cortisol heart rate everything right so ideally everything runs in sync and on time Think of an orchestra with, you know, a hundred different instruments. Well, your body is like billions of different instruments. And if they all play in sync and on time together, then that's how the machinery works the best, right? Um, And part of what keeps your circadian system functioning well is having that consistent night-day rhythm. Having very dark nights and very bright days, sleeping at about the same time every night. Um, doesn't matter if it's late or early, just if it's consistent, it's good. Um, and having that robust kind of up and down, uh, fluctuation in your sleep and all, in all your other systems is just generally good for health and recovery too. So in the hospital, uh, instead of having lights on all the time, and noise on all the time, if we could make a really distinct difference between day versus night, like only having orangey lights and very dim at night, um, would go a long way because that would tell our brains, okay, these are this, you're not living in a cave and you're not living in a laboratory. You're living in the real world where the sun rises and sets. And that really actually helps our bodies to recover better.
0: For sure. One of the uh, things I really appreciate about the field of pm um, when you're kind of in the acute hospital setting is because we function on kind of like a longer time scale with our patients where they're not necess- if they're in for acute inpatient rehab, they're not there for like three or four days like they would for any other acute hospitalization. They might be there for like two to three weeks. And okay. the interventions aren't as acute where you're not just like, you don't need to take their blood necessarily every single day right. because they're in there for rehab. If they have like a medical condition where you need to do it, then sure, maybe. But for the most part, it's like a two to three three week extended, you're there to rehab. You're not there for quote unquote medical treatment. Good. Um, although Perfect. you might require some sort of medical treatment. So you can definitely start to prioritize sleep a little bit more, which I find beneficial. Awesome. Um, and I find that could be a huge help with a uh, rehab, I guess. I haven't looked into the research so much on that yet, but we'll get there with time.
1: Yeah, there's definitely research on that. Absolutely. You'll find confirmation of everything we've talked about.
0: For sure. Um, and let's okay, so we've kind of discussed the uh pathology aspect of it, the illness aspect of it so let's get into a little bit of the treatment um kind of before we go into the more practical for listeners back home aspect um which is you provide non medication solutions like behavioral therapy what is that <laughs>
1: Uh, well, uh, depending on the sleep disorder. So the main one that I work with the most is insomnia. So insomnia, again, is trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, having daytime symptoms because of that and having, um, you know, distress about, about sleep problems. So behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia really targets the things that keep insomnia going long term because we all have a bad night here or there, you know, like... Sometimes we choose to, we pull an all nighter, you know, on uh, on uh, a party night or like a study night and you mm-hmm. just have to deal with it. And that's fine. We'll recover after that. Um, there are also maybe somewhat longer term life circumstances that make uh, sleep more difficult. Like if you have surgery or you get a divorce or you have a baby, these are all short term things though. When, the, when that circumstance passes, um, most of us get back to baseline with our sleep. So why is it that some people have insomnia for years after their baby is grown, years after their divorce is finalized, years after they've left that stressful job? That's because there are perpetuating factors that keep insomnia Mm. going. So if we can identify what these perpetuating factors are and take those logs out of the fire, then the fire runs out of fuel and burns itself out, right? So these perpetuating factors, it turns out, are the ways that we act around sleep and the ways that we think about sleep. So for example, um, you know, have you ever talked to a patient who was like, Oh my gosh, I could not fall asleep last night. Or I woke up during the night and I immediately started thinking about how I only have four more hours to sleep. I'm watching the clock and it's, ticking and ticking. And it's like, I'm running out of time and I'm going to be so tired tomorrow. And oh my gosh, my grandfather had dementia. Does this mean that I'm going to have dementia because I'm having sleep deprivation? Does that sound a a little bit familiar? Like some people said that.
0: I mean, mash a whole bunch of patient interactions to that and you have pretty much that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of anxiety about sleep baked into insomnia.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: when you shine a big spotlight on the fact that you don't sleep well when you think about it in the middle of the night when you're fretting about it tossing and turning um, then that is just raising your frustration raising your anxiety also teaching yourself to be awake and frustrated and anxious in bed, hmm. right? So all of that increases our physiological arousal and that makes it harder to sleep. So a lot of insomnia is kind of a vicious cycle, like a self-perpetuating fa- uh, cycle where um, the more we worry about it, the more we don't sleep well. So part of behavioral um, and cognitive therapy for insomnia is to first correct some mis- misconceptions about sleep and to find ways to compartmentalize worry and anxiety and to find more helpful ways of relating to sleep, having a better relationship with sleep so that we're not really like treating it like an enemy or a chore, but rather treating it like a friend. Um, so that's part of it. And there are also some more sort of, um, bare bones, biological, physiological resets that we do, you know, like we have people, um, Potentially spend less time in bed because often people with insomnia are spending way too much time in bed trying to make up for lost sleep. So they're going to bed long before their circadian rhythm is ready for sleep before they have enough sleep drive built up or they're lingering in bed in the mornings. Um, And what that means is they don't have enough time outside of bed. To actually build up the sleep hunger, the sleep drive that they need mm-hmm. in order to sleep well. So often we think of sleep backwards like, oh, how much sleep do I need in order to function during the day? But we don't really ask how much functioning during the day do I need to do in order to earn good sleep, mm-hmm. right? So we kind of turn, turn these perspectives around and help people to um, do a hard reset on their sleep physiology and get back to baseline.
0: So yeah, I really, appreci- sure, I really appreciate that explanation because this is not something you would typically think of when you think of insomnia. You don't think about all these feelings and all these thoughts that people have surrounding sleep sure. um, when it comes to like the medicine aspect, or I guess when you talk to your friends or someone who's complains of insomnia, oh, I just take some melatonin for it and it can help. Or when you speak to like a physician um, who might not be as educated on that they'll be like, oh, I just prescribe some Ambien, some other sleep medication, whatever it is. and don't really get to kind of the root of what insomnia could be. So mm-hmm. I really... I really appreciate that explanation. Definitely learned a lot from that.
1: Well, you hit the nail on the head, I think, with uh, talking about the root of the issue. Um, Because sleep medications, I mean, there's a whole diverse range of what they are and how they work. But essentially, they're helping us to either uh, dampen everything down – or they're helping us to forget waking up at night. So you mentioned ambient, the number one mm-hmm. most popularly prescribed yeah. insomnia medication. So that... Uh, if you measure the objective sleep changes with ambient, it's not much. It's like 5, 10 minutes, you know, faster to fall asleep. Um, maybe like up to half an hour more total sleep. But like there's a huge variation in how much, whether that's even achieved. But what happens is people forget that they woke up during the night. So then it feels like they slept more. So, so these medications are not really getting to real improved sleep, and not really taking away those perpetuating factors that are keeping insomnia going, which is why cognitive behavioral therapy is the first line treatment mm-hmm. recommended by all of these, you know, bodies. Yeah. Um, and and it's not just because it's like. Oh, you know, let's do this uh, because it doesn't involve medications, fewer side effects. All of those things are true. um, And that is good, but it also just works better too.
0: Hmm. Like with
1: medications, once you stop taking Ambien, you lose the effect of Ambien. But with... Behavior therapy, once you learn the skills and the concepts, you have those for life. So, you know, in the calculus of all things, it's actually less expensive <laughs> and more effective to do um, behavioral therapy for insomnia. Uh,
0: yeah. I was actually going to ask kind of the effectiveness because you were mentioning it as the first line, which you also just did now. But um, typically when you think of a first line, you think of it as really effective where like a very large proportion of patients are kind of cured from that. Yes. Um, would you say it kind of works that way?
1: Yes, it does. Um and so there's at least 124 good quality clinical trials showing that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia works. Um, and depending on the trial, I mean, there are trials where they have people just with insomnia and plenty mm-hmm. of trials where people had insomnia and chronic pain or, and depression or, and PTSD and um, sleep apnea and whatever. So we know that this treatment not only works for people who are otherwise healthy and just have trouble sleeping, it also helps people who have insomnia that's maybe originally uh, occurred because they had cancer, or underwent some surgery mm-hmm. or treatment, um, but now they have Insomnia and the other disease, um, and we can actually just isolate the insomnia and target that, and that'll improve sleep and improve some aspects of the other disease as well. Um, uh, so yeah, that's that's pretty powerful, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. So kind of after that first step as the first line, what's next after that? If kind of the behavioral therapy doesn't work, is that where you start going towards medication? And if so, kind of what is the treatment plan for that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Um, so out of all of the uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommended treatments, the only one to receive a strong recommendation, meaning, you know, if you're a clinician, you should uh, under most circumstances follow that is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, it's either um, individual components of um, the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or medication. So none of the, those other things, including the medications, receive a strong recommendation. But yes, yeah, so after that, you would um, sort of look at the whole symptom profile to see, you know, if someone does have depression and insomnia, perhaps a sedating antidepressant would make sense. You know, so of course, you know, much more about prescribing than I do. I'm not a prescriber, um, but you know, that I think it really comes down to clinical judgment at that point.
0: And I wouldn't even say I know that much about prescribing specifically sleep medications because that's not something that I know. But it's amazing that I actually have not heard of so much effect happening from CBT for insomnia because it seems super efficacious and super, like, it's just like a really good thing, That but I don't hear about it and I don't know why. So I'm really happy to be talking to you and learning (laughs) about this.
1: Yeah, isn't it funny how CBT is kind of a no-brainer for insomnia, but... For many different reasons. Uh, most people, even highly educated doctors, you know, like you, do not know about it. Or even if they know about it, they don't have any CBT specialists to refer their patients to. So that's definitely a big problem.
0: We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at Prevent Pod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. Yeah, so definitely. I think one of the main things is always being aware of what exists in the spectrum of treatment and the spectrum of specialists so that you know where to refer to and where patients Mm -hmm. can get help. Because obviously, as one person, you're not going to be able to do everything. You can't provide the entire range of treatments for any disease. So it's nice to be informed about this. Um, So moving on to kind of the second half of this podcast, which is kind of I think what a lot of people want to hear about is kind of more about how can they get better sleep? And with the conversation around that comes sleep hygiene. So what does good sleep hygiene look like? I know you mentioned it briefly um, in the first half of this. And then how do you create a sustainable sleep schedule?
1: Yeah. So first I want to clarify what sleep hygiene means. So usually when people hear about sleep hygiene, it's a list of kind of do's and don'ts, like don't drink coffee close to bedtime, you know, don't exercise too close to bedtime, consistent schedule and things like that. So some, um, I would say, here's how I think about sleep hygiene. It's kind of like dental hygiene you know, it's good to have in general, it's good preventative stuff. But once you already have a cavity, dental hygiene flossing is not going to get rid of your cavity. Just like if you already have a sleep disorder, having just doing sleep hygiene is not going to cure it. Mm. So um, when we talked about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, that is not the same thing as sleep hygiene. So just want to Clarify that to begin with. So in case anyone's listening who has insomnia, uh, you've probably already tried sleep hygiene. It probably hasn't worked. It is used as the placebo condition in a lot of our trials. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not surprised if it doesn't work. Um, But generally, uh, I would say it's very hard to give a universal list of sleep advice items that really suits everybody. Um, but I think t- the safe items to say are, one, if you can keep a consistent sleep-wake schedule, that will be really, really good. Because earlier we mentioned the circadian rhythm. Um, this is a sort of underestimated aspect of sleep. We talk about sleep itself as if it happens in a vacuum, but it happens against the background of 24 hour rhythms. And so having the same, say seven hours of sleep, but at the wrong times or broken up into chunks is not going to be as good as if Mm. you have it you know, at night during the time that most suits your chronotype. Chronotype refers to whether you're a natural born night owl or morning person somewhere in between. So I would say be consistent, um, including on weekends, days off of work, try to be within about an hour of when you wake up. And if you're consistent enough on the morning end, in terms of when you wake up, then your body should let you know when to get sleepy in the evenings to give you the sleep that you need. So listen to your body, but give it some guardrails, like getting Mm. up at the same time. And also having some wind down time in the evening so that you actually can can hear your body say, "Okay, I'm sleepy now. Let's go to bed. Um I, I've been talking with a lot of patients, especially during the pandemic where now they're working from home. They oh, yeah. work anytime they want, which sometimes means they're working late into the night. They're flipping shut their laptop and then rolling into bed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not enough of a wind down time. You either are going to bed too early because you feel so exhausted from work that you just want to shut everything off, but maybe you're tired, but not sleepy yet in which case you're going to have insomnia or you're going to bed too late. Maybe already like an hour or two hours ago, your body was trying to tell you that it needed sleep, but you didn't hear it saying that because you were too busy answering work emails. So you really ought to give yourself, um, a couple hours in the evening, at least where you've switched away from doing mode, the productive hustle bustle mode into being mode where you're relaxing, you're listening to your body, you're resting And you're getting in touch with the parts of yourself that are also really important other than work, like your relationships, your Mm -hmm. mental health, your self-care, all of those things. So those are... um, I would say the the consistent uh, wake time, sleep-wake schedule, the wind down in the evenings, getting enough rest during the day. Um, so not, you know, going 80 miles an hour all day and expecting yourself to slam on the brakes at bedtime, you know, giving yourself chances to actually breathe, to um, reset your eyes, you know, to mentally reset, to get grounded in your body. That's also really important for nighttime sleep.
0: You said a lot of important things in there. I want to go back all the way to the beginning, emphasize one thing first, which was the um, kind of if you already have a sleep disorder, then sleep hygiene might not or probably will not work for you. And that's really frustrating for a lot of people because some people who have difficulty with sleep, the first thing everyone tells them is sleep hygiene. So then right. they start with like the regulating their wake-up time, sleep time, then it comes down to like caffeine, and then they start eliminating caffeine. All of a sudden they go from like whatever how much caffeine they were having to none next thing you know they're buying blue light glasses because all these companies are telling Mm -hmm. them that that's the problem right it can become really frustrating and nothing works why because they actually have a sleep disorder so if you're listening to this and that kind of fits your build and that's actually a really important distinction to make and i'm really happy the brought uh you brought that up yeah
1: Um, and in fact working too hard on creating the perfect sleep hygiene routine uh, contributes to insomnia because that's, you're working too hard when you're putting that much effort and energy and attention on the fact that you're not sleeping well and trying to perfect it and be too rigid about it. That actually increases arousal and makes it harder to sleep. So, and, and it's also funny because when I talk to patients, uh, almost everyone has tried sleep hygiene before they get to me, um, but it's the items in sleep hygiene that are most likely to actually help them that they sort of tried and gave up on really quickly. Like they uh, they heard that they should do a consistent sleep-wake time, so they tried going to bed at the exact time, same time every day. But then they would sleep in sometimes or mm. not sleep in other times, and then they would get wishy-washy on the morning end. But it's the opposite. You can't really control when you fall asleep, but you can't control when you set your alarm clock and when you get up right? Mm. So do the part that you can control, which is to get up at the same time every day, and then be more flexible and go with the flow and listen to your body for the part that you cannot control, which is the evening end. Um, so it's funny because when people get to me, they've like try different bed sheets and like Himalayan <laughs> salt lamps and all these <laughs> products. And oh man, there's there's a reason why there's such a huge industry in sleep aid products. Definitely. Right? Because people are so desperate to get good sleep. But almost none of those products is really gonna move the needle on your sleep if you have insomnia. Um, it's certainly not going to be the answer for your insomnia.
0: And that's a really nice and cool reframe because when you think about sleep hygiene, everyone tells you about go to sleep at the same time, but no one kind of talks about wake up at the same time. And it makes perfect sense that you can control when you wake up a lot easier because you have an alarm clock. Once an alarm clock hits, you're essentially awake. And any sleep you get after that isn't real sleep anyway. So I like that you put it that way. And also, this is kind of why we bring guests like you on because there's this entire industry is propped up on non-evidence-based type things where they try to help people sleep. But all you have to do is try to wake up at the same time same time and make that an enduring behavior like anything else that we talk about with exercise nutrition all those things it has to be enduring you're not going to fix your diet over one week it's going to take a long amount of or a longer period of time so So it's the same thing for waking up
1: so so i really
0: appreciate that reframe that's amazing
1: yeah yeah and i'm glad you brought up um exercise and nutrition too, because those are also intricately linked to sleep, you know? So so if we are talking about um, kind of universal sleep advice that I would give to anyone, I would say, you know, eat nutritious meals and don't starve all day and eat one giant dinner, you know, spread your meals and snacks out and make sure you eat something first thing in the morning. So even if you're not a big breakfast person at least eat something to get your metabolism started because that actually gives a strong signal to your circadian system about what mm. time it is in your 24-hour cycle so if you're waiting all the way until evening to eat your m- big meal your maybe your only meal of the day then you're telling your body at you know 8 p.m. that oh the day's just starting You know, so then, of course, Mm -hmm. you're going to have trouble falling asleep, not to mention, you know, your your um, core body temperature is high and your metabolism is still working hard by the time you go to bed. So meal timing and and nutritional value of your meals does matter for sleep Um, and exercise. That is like the number one best thing you can do for your sleep is to exercise pretty consistently, routinely. It doesn't have to be a marathon. You know, it doesn't have <laughs> to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger lifting regimen or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's better to even just, I mean, you you know about the specifics about uh, that better than I do, but I would say if you can walk every day, that would be better than, certainly better than nothing. Um, and better maybe than one big sprint of something once a week. So yeah, being active, you're building up your sleep drive during the day, you're, um, releasing all the good, you know, neurotransmitters, you're balancing, you know, the, the, the mood needs of your body and the physical needs of your body. Um, it's just generally exercise is kind of the answer to everything.
0: <laughs> I can, uh, I can emphasize that point, especially I, a huge proponent of exercise big exercise chill here um, i also want to say i did not know about the starting metabolism off in the morning and how that is related to circadian rhythm so that's also something i didn't know i'm learning so much from this podcast so thank you for that <laughs> first off i also want to ask you you mentioned chronotype and like that mm-hmm. refers to like people whether they like to sleep late whether they're night owls early birds those kinds of things mm-hmm. um, unfortunately sometimes given the demands of life you have to start a day at like 8am 9am but for someone who can't get to bed by like 3am <laughs> my brother, um, yeah. <laughs> then kind of what, what do you do for that situation?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if you absolutely cannot get more flexibility in your work or family or social obligations, that's okay. Um, we can, I'm a night owl too by nature, but we night owls can actually kind of fake it till we make it. Um, and we can <laughs> actually shift our melatonin, um, timing to be to resemble that of a morning person's. So one of my favorite studies of all time, they did this in Colorado. uh, They took people who are biologically hardwired as morning people and people who are biologically hardwired as night owls took everybody camping. And so they had no screens in the evenings. They only had fire, orangey firelight, you know, after sunset. And of course they're sleeping in tents. So like once the sun is up, you know, it's bright and then they're up and like in the sun all day uh, or not necessarily in the sun directly, but they're getting bright light exposure Mm -hmm. all day. Mm -hmm. So after like four or five days of camping, all of the biological night owls were more like morning people, both in their behavior and how they felt and when they wanted to and felt like sleeping and even in their melatonin profile. Mm. So it is possible to sort of train your chronotype using things like light exposure um, and very, very specifically dosed and timed melatonin. So don't do this on your own. Talk to a sleep specialist to to do this because if you do this at the wrong time of day or night, you can go backwards. So, you know, we're not going to get into all the details here, but essentially... Once
0: again, no medical advice on this podcast. Just no medical
1: <laughs> advice on this podcast. No, none at all. Talk to your doctor. Um, like And on this topic specifically, talk to a sleep specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, but with light what I would say to your brother is get a bright dose of light first thing in the morning Um, that will help to um, tell his brain when it is daytime like start the whole machinery of starting the daytime part of the 24 hour cycle at that time and to get lots of bright light during the day as much as possible so for example i have a ring light here that's like
0: same here you know, yeah, yeah
1: that's good because you know we're probably sitting inside i mean even with a window right here that's not enough light exposure during mm-hmm. the day so we need the the extra bright light if we're inside but better yet, go outside. That's double whammy. You get the exercise and the mm-hmm. fre- you know, triple whammy and the fresh air and the light. So that's all good. Um, and then in the evenings, I mean, we don't have to be super sticklers about this, but, you know, dimming our screens a little bit, you know, um, like putting on night shift on our iPhones and iPads, things like that. Um, that doesn't make a huge difference, but for a for a severe night owl Um, like someone who's a 3 a.m. bedtime person. Yeah, that would be
0: my brother, 3 to 4 a.m.
1: Okay, so yeah, for him, um, he's actually probably more sensitive to light exposure at night in terms of shifting his circadian rhythm backward, like later. So if he's like on his iPad at 2 a.m., that's definitely more detrimental to him than to somebody else on their iPad, Mm -hmm. you know, earlier in the night. So yeah, less light at night, more light during the day. And consistency on the morning end. Sure.
0: That's really what it boils down to. What about the the total hours of sleep at that standpoint? Because you said you can't like kind of sustain on four to five hours of sleep. But if for some reason you can't sleep until like three a.m. and you have to wake up at eight or whatnot to go to work, what do you do in that circumstance? Is just the answer is naps or?
1: I guess naps. Yeah. I mean, ideally, you would um, think really hard about why it is that your schedule is like that and Mm -hmm. you know for a lot of people they don't have a choice they have multiple jobs to feed their family that was actually a
0: follow-up question so i'm happy that you're addressing this now
1: yeah i mean that is really really um honestly it's it's tragic and that's why there's sleep health disparities um, between um majority and minority races in in america and perhaps elsewhere too um and people who live you know who work um jobs that are like night shift jobs for example are more likely to be black americans um poorer americans so there, that's why there is a huge gap in our sleep health right because when you work the type of job that allows you a comfortable flexible schedule then you can kind of work with your chronotype mm-hmm. more and get enough sleep mm-hmm. whereas if you can't help it but you know you don't get home from your job until midnight but then you have to be up at five for your next job yeah then there's really not much that can be done about that um but yeah strategic napping is kind of one small way we can mitigate it um so whenever possible catching up with some short naps um trying to be consistent about that if possible so that we're not doing like no napping on some days, but like three hour naps on other days, you know, if we could spread that out to be like one hour naps each day, depending on the situation and availability of time. um, It's, it's really, really tough. Um, Sure. But yeah.
0: Dr. Winters was mentioning how, um, acute periods of sleep kind of not, uh, sleep loss, not deprivation can kind of be making, uh, made up kind of on the weekend. So if there is more time than sleep on the weekends, if you've not heard that part, go listen to the first part of this, uh, uh, podcast series, I guess on sleep. So you can hear a little bit more about that. Um, I also just wanted to say that's, Incredibly unfortunate because you have kind of like that triple whammy where you have multiple jobs, so you can't sleep that much, and then because you can't sleep that much, it affects your physical health, Mm -hmm. and because it affects your physical health, you might not be able to work at your jobs as like Mm -hmm. best you can, and affects your mental health, and then it all just kind of compounds on each other, and you stay within this loop, and it's very difficult to get out because job advancement is very difficult if you're not performing at your best, you're not at your mental best, your mood best, all those things. If you can't, you're going to stay with minimal sleep. If you're going to stay with minimal sleep, it's going to affect your health yeah it's terrible Um, it is
1: awful i i hope we can find a way to combat it that is a huge um gap in our our research in our field i mean we've come up with all of these treatments for insomnia and for other sleep disorders but it's like okay but we can't actually implement a lot of this for people who literally Mm -hmm. cannot implement
0: these
1: um these things so yeah and and I would say, uh, yeah, uh, I'll just leave it at that because it's it's too huge of a, too huge scale of a problem. Yeah.
0: yeah at the end of every podcast, we tend to get a little bit more philosophical and we get like <laughs> larger because yeah. the scope of our problem just keeps increasing. We we'll always yeah. end up in public health somehow and policy, but that's kind of unavoidable. That's how like public health and preventive medicine kind of goes. So yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, on the other spectrum of that, if you have someone who is kind of has more time to worry about their sleep, quote unquote, they get a sleep tracker. And then now they start tracking their like REM sleep, their deep sleep, their like time in bed, all of those things. What are your thoughts on sleep trackers? Do they help? Are they beneficial? Or do they kind of add more um, anxiety to the puzzle?
1: Great question. Um, As a researcher, I'm excited about sleep trackers because now we have Big data, right? We have just mm-hmm. unprecedented levels of data to look at. Definitely. So that's exciting. But as a clinician, when I talk to individual patients, especially those with insomnia, um, I would say this is probably hurting more than it's helping because one, it's not giving you any actionable advice, right? Like you might find out more information about your sleep, But that information isn't even presented to you in the context of sleep science most of the time. Like Mm -hmm. you get a score or you get a breakdown of sleep stages, which may may not even be accurate. Um, And then what do you do with that? You know, it's not like sleep is an involuntary behavior. It's not like exercise where you see, oh, I only did... Eight thousand steps. My goal is to be up to ten thousand next week. You can actually work at that, but with sleep, if you see that oh, you got ten percent deep sleep, what are you gonna do to increase that percentage? (laughs) There's nothing you can so so it just increases your sleep effort, increases your sleep anxiety, Um, and if you see that you got ten percent deep sleep, you might think that's terrible, but that's actually totally normal, you know, especially if you're Mm -hmm. middle age or older. So I think it's. In its current form, consumer sleep trackers for individual insomnia patients, probably not a good idea.
0: I think uh, from the consumer perspective as well, you were mentioning how we have unprecedented amounts of data. I think on the consumer end of it right now, I don't even think that data is necessarily beneficial for clinicians because you bring in all this data that has no context for a clinician and then the clinician is going to want to know what the setting is and like the context behind that data. So they're probably going to repeat it themselves yeah. and then they're going to make recommendations based off your own collected data because now you know the story behind it. So I don't right. think in general I would ever recommend, I mean, this is coming from me who's not necessarily sleep scientist, but I personally would never recommend a sleep track or anything like that because there's no actionable items like you were saying. The data is not necessarily going to be beneficial to the clinician because they're probably going to repeat it themselves and it's going to give you more sleep anxiety than anything else.
1: Yeah. And, and exactly. the only time where I might ask for someone's like, say Fitbit sleep data is if I, especially if it's like a teenager or, you know, younger, younger patient who, um, had seems to be like, just totally out of whack with their circadian rhythm and they can't even really tell you like Mm. how many times they sleep a day or like, Do they sleep at the same time? They can't tell you. You, you don't know. The parents don't really know. Then, then a sleep tracker might give you some ballpark idea of, Oh, does this person have like a profound circadian rhythm disorder? Like they don't even have a 24 hour rhythm, or are they sleeping a lot more than they think or a lot less than they think than they're like willing to, to tell you, you know? So it might give some big ballpark ideas, but generally you're right. I don't think it's going to provide anything actionable for the clinician or for the patient.
0: You mentioned sleep trackers in their current form. I don't know if you're currently thinking of an idea, if you're an entrepreneurial spirit in this <laughs> regard, or if you're going to give away some seeker, but what do you think in the future would be improved that could make them beneficial for clinicians like yourself?
1: Yeah. So one thing I am kind of excited about is ambulatory EEG. So this is where we actually directly, well, almost directly measure brain activity, I say almost directly because we're really measuring um, like scalp um, measuring measuring um, indirect electrical activity in the Mm -hmm. brain based on scalp, you know, activity. Right. So um, if we can. So right now, the gold standard sleep measurement is the in-lab polysomnography, which is Mm -hmm. a multi-channel EEG plus a bunch of other measures. If we can take that outside of the lab and have people just wear it in their own home environment, or even for more than one night at a time, um, that will be super helpful because now we're getting like an ecologically valid measure. We're getting more than one night at a time. um, And we're looking at actual sleep stages instead of these like accelerometer um, estimated sleep stages, which are not really that accurate. So, I and I know that these ambulatory EEGs already do exist. There are a couple of products out there that I'm excited to learn more about. Um, And I think they're probably, I predict that that's going to become a widespread thing within the next like 10 years or so, because there's such a need for it. And the technology is like blossoming. So I'm sure it'll be around the corner.
0: Man, that just snaps my entrepreneurial spirit. I was going to make something, but it's already there. Of course, someone's probably already working on everything. So that's there. Mm -hmm. Um, As we get to the end of this podcast, like I said, we always end up on some pseudo philosophical type of rant. Sure. Um, And that (laughs) in this instance is when it comes to sleep, not getting enough sleep seems to be um, something that is celebrated at this time because it's you're hustling, Mm -hmm. you're grinding, Mm -hmm. you're doing, you're working hard and all those kinds of things. And obviously not getting enough sleep is detrimental as we've discussed during the entire day of this podcast. Mm -hmm. How do we kind of reverse this trend? Because obviously I would think you were trying to reverse this trend as much as you Mm -hmm. can. So how do we do that?
1: Well, I think one good starting point is helping people to understand where that idea comes from. And for many people... Uh, And since we were talking about sleep disparities for many minority Americans, especially black Americans, understanding that this hustle grind culture is a legacy of slavery and oppression can be really eye opening. Mm. Because back in the days of actual slavery in America, um, you know, slaves were in part kept in line, quote, by being sleep deprived. And, um, also there was a big danger and stigma to falling asleep during the day, uh, to, or sleeping anytime you're technically not supposed to, um, because then you would get punished or you will be seen as a lazy, you know, whatever. Um, if, if you're, if you're trying to sleep. So, so then that carried through generations of trauma and oppression. And so now what I'm noticing in my work with individual patients is that many of my black patients are carrying this legacy of belief of, you know, my grandparents worked around the clock and slept four hours a night to make this life for my parents that Mm -hmm. allowed them to make this life for me. You know, you have to, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You have to hustle. You have to work hard. You know, even like major sports celebrities are saying, I get up at 4 a.m. to practice, you know, as if this is like – a moral good thing to be doing. So then we're just entrenching these ideas that stigmatize sleeping and, um, glorify sleep deprivation in order to get ahead. Um, you know, that actually has a really dark and tragic and violent past. So I think if we can recognize where that comes from, um, and for non-minorities too, I mean, the, 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 you know, the violence of serfdom and capitalism, you know, of this idea of we we have eight hours work, eight hours sleep, eight hours for everything else. That slogan came from the days of early um, factories, you know, making the industrialists rich, you know, so so this is all wrapped up in social injustice and, and social oppression. So at least for me, knowing this history and understanding the roots of where these Unhealthy ideas of sleep come from really helps me want to push back on it and say, you know what? I deserve my rest. I deserve my sleep. This is my God-given right. Um, I am going to shut down my computer and I'm not going to answer those urgent emails and I'm going to rest because that's that's what I owe to my body and my life.
0: That, that it's incredibly powerful. I had no clue that this was kind of the history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in my head, I was just thinking of like, you see all these entrepreneurs on Instagram, YouTube, because they're like glorifying that they're up at 4am studying the stock market before the day starts and all those kinds of things. But I absolutely had no idea of the history of this and where it all came from. So thank you for opening my eyes to that, first of all. And I'm, I'm assuming this is going to be a first for a lot of listeners as well.
1: I, I hope so too. And you know, the, those, you know, entrepreneurs and stockbrokers who are up at 4am, I'm checking stocks. I mean, we wonder why there were so many bad decisions leading up to the financial crash. <laughs> like, what if everybody? What if everybody on Wall Street slept like one or two more hours per night? Maybe I, I, w- would we be in a different place? Yeah. Who knows? But you know, we do know that a lot of oil spills and traffic accidents and terrible decisions, invasions of countries, a lot of these things probably could be prevented if everybody just rested and slept more.
0: Yeah, and putting that back into the context of medicine, the same thing goes with physicians where it's kind of glorified that you're at the hospital working and not kind of quote-unquote lifestyle specialties get a bad rep because you're prioritizing your own kind of well-being, your own sleep, all those kinds of things. So uh, the the culture of not getting enough sleep is kind of pervasive throughout everywhere now that you think about it. And now knowing those roots, it kind of makes sense where a lot of this comes from.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if we want social justice today sleep equality and sleep equity sleep health is going to be a crucial part of that puzzle
0: sleep is the answer to world peace we have solved oh, yes. everything on this podcast right here <laughs> now if we could only get everyone to go sleep and sleep for uh, 33 years of their life if they lived to 99
1: yes yes
0: preach all right I had a phenomenal time on this podcast. I learned so much. This is probably one of the podcasts that I learned the most on. Um, oh, great. I, I selfishly do these podcasts as well so that I can learn a lot. And this has definitely <laughs> been one of them. I hope you enjoyed your time on this as well. Absolutely.
1: Lucky. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Definitely. Um, so thanks for coming on with that. We're out. We'll see you guys next week. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.